Hello everyone and welcome to this very special audio commentary for the film Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. My name is Michael Felcher. I am the owner and operator of Red Shirt Pictures and I'm very happy to be here today with the film's director, the one and only Brian Usna. How are you, sir? Fine. Good. So before we get some history here on how you became interested and involved in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series, I would like to point out that you are both as a producer and a director, a big fan of the opening prologue. You like to give us a little bit of a tease of what to expect with your movies, and this dates back all the way to Reanimator and certainly follows you through to this day, and this one is no exception as we get Clint Howard here uh, eating hamburger and watching a woman fall off to her death and catch fire. Uh, is that something that you've always liked doing, uh, giving us a little bit of a, a, a tease of what to expect? Yeah, I'm. I think it... Um... I don't know if I always thought that was the right thing to do, but of course, since I had, um, uh, with Reanimator, the first movie I ever made, produced, um, we did have this whole issue about the opening, and we went back after we had cut the movie together to shoot the prologue. And there was an idea when, you know, that the movie started it had to set up a lot of stuff. And so by going back and doing the prologue, it gave the audience a sense of, of just how extreme the movie was going to be. And I think that that's real. You know, I think it's real important to know where you're, you know, where you are with the movie and not have to wait five or ten minutes to um, discover it. So, yeah, I like I like doing it. And I do love um, prologues, you know, you know, you know, opening sequences and enjoy them in general. And as well as prologues, you're also fond of these very graphic, heavy title sequences. And this one's actually one of my favorites of all the films that you've done. Uh, again, this is a practice you've had back since you worked with Stuart first on Reanimator. And we've got one of Richard Band's scores accompanying it, which is actually one of my favorites of his work. Uh, what inspired you for this particular sequence here with the spiral imagery that we're seeing? Um, it's based on um, feminist iconography. So the spiral um, is a feminist kind of, or a feminine, I don't know, kind of image. And then, of course, there's the Hitchcockian aspect to it, um, which I think it was very influential to me. I loved, um, I, for Reanimator, I really wanted a, a um, title sequence that reflected the... Um, the kind of title sequences Roger Corman did for his Poe movies. He would just pour colored paint around. But for some reason, that just really, I just love the just total graphic, abstract um, images. And of course, um, the uh, Saul Bass title sequences for, for um, Hitchcock were, are just really um, probably the best ever. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. They're the cream of the crop for sure. So let's go back to Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 initiation and how this came up for you. Uh, you were coming off of a very, very, actually kind of in the middle of a very, very busy period of your career. You had come off of producing the first three films for Stuart Gordon, and then you transitioned into directing with Society. And you were either just finishing up or in the middle of production on Bride of Reanimator, when I believe this, this particular project came up for you, and I think it has something to do with 
Live Entertainment, who picked up the distribution rights for Bride of Reanimator and decided to come to you to help continue the Silent Night, Deadly Night series, which they had just restarted with part three about a year and a half before that. And uh, were you looking exclusively for directorial projects at this point or uh, films to produce exclusively or back and forth? I mean, what was sort of your career goal at that point? Well, actually, um, I came into making films kind of in my 30s. I had been doing a lot of other things. And um, I decided I wanted to make movies. And I did, um, I had no prep for it. I didn't ever take a class or anything. And I produced reanimator dolls and from beyond before this mm -hmm. and kind of learned sort of how you make movies by actually just watching mm. then i wanted to try directing and i did society and bride of reanimator bride of reanimator was then sold or the u.s distribution rights were sold to um to live entertainment mm. and richard gladstein was there I think he, I don't know if he was head of acquisitions or, or he was some, you know, he had an executive position there. And he visited the set when we were at the end of Shooting Bride and Live did acquire the rights. And he, um, and then he contacted me after that and asked if I wanted to direct um, one of these um, Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels. Mm. Uh, he had, he had acquired the rights to the franchise for live mm -hmm. after the second movie. And the third one he produced, yeah. and then he was going uh, to make another one. Now, live distributed um, video, they, and, um, and they had their models at that time for, you know, how much you had to spend on a video title, um, assuming you had a, a, you know, an IP and um, and you had one name actor to put on the box. Right. So they kind of came up with a, a model for that. And as long as um, Richard, um, you know, gave them their model, he could um, do what he wanted. So he he there's Richard right there. Oh, yeah, screen. right there on the left. Yeah. Um, and so he um, offered it to me. Now, the budget was super low. Mm. I mean, really, really low. Uh, because, of course, this was a video thing. And he already had a script, which was had kind of really taken off from the other movies. And um, it wasn't really much of a of a Christmas thing whatsoever. No. Um, and it there was already this feminist type of script. It was a kind of a coven. And I was really there's Reggie Bannister. Oh, yeah. One of our favorites. And I was happy to get him in on it, having been a huge Phantasm fan. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, um, we, um, I really was hesitant to do it. But then it was like the first time anybody had ever offered me a job on a movie. <laughs> All the other movies I'd made, I was the producer or director because I was part of – I put the deal together. Mm -hmm. And so I get to – I get to choose, you know, I appointed myself. This was the first time that um, anybody had ever said, hey, we'll pay you to direct a movie. And that was such a thrill to me. I just didn't feel like I could turn it down. And as someone who has never had an agent or manager, 
in the film business, which was kind of really stupid on my part. Um, it's not like anybody was out there looking for jobs for me. And when this came up, I just thought, well, let's just do it. And I got, and of course, I brought in Screaming Mad George right. and Woody Keith, who, who, who at that time, now he's, he's um, his name is Zeph Daniel. And Woody, or Zeph and George and I had collaborated on Society to, for, and had a lot of fun on that. And then, and then we also did on Bride of Reanimator. Mm. And, um, and so this was, I was really, I just love working with them. Woody, or Zeph had such a, um, such an odd take on things. He <laughs> has a very strange kind of humorous um, point of view when he's writing a script. And, and Screaming Mad George and I just really mesh on the, in, in our um, love for surrealism and for these surrealist concepts. And so what happened with this movie was we, um, Zeph went ahead and rewrote it. I think he has script credit and everybody else has story credit. I brought in the idea since it was a coven I kind of tried to base it on the myth of Lilith. Mm. And Lilith was the first um, wife of Adam. She was created in Jewish mythology. She was created fr from the same dust as Adam, mm -hmm. but she wouldn't let him lie on top of her. So by rejecting his dominance, she left the Garden of Eden and eventually was blamed for all the evils of mankind. <laughs> and I like that idea. She's usually um, she's portrayed as like having talons for feet and a fire in her belly. And she's it's basically she for many uh, millennia, she was seen as a um, as the um, kind of a, a she demon, mm -hmm. this terrible demon. And who um, would steal men's sperm in there when they're sleeping and and create these um, night demons, all these other demons. And so she was really a bad character until the 20th century when um, feminists started uh, uh, embracing her as a independent woman, as a woman who is not dependent on on men. And so I thought that was, I really got into that. And I usually have some kind of weird kind of idea that I base. Um, when I'm working on a movie, I, I kind of do research into things that might, might apply. And so I thought this would be the story of a woman who begins by, an ambitious woman, but a woman who begins by being kind of under the, you know, a little bit under the thumb of her boyfriend sexually mm -hmm. and, and personally, and that through being initiated into this coven, she begins to free herself of that sort of domination of males and, um, you know, patriarchy. Right. And so she, um, she's an investigative reporter, of course, so we have a mystery to, to unveil. But then the horrors of the initiation um, are kind of um, show that that's that's sort of not where she she needs to free herself from that as as well. Um, so anyway, that was kind of how I approached it. And then Screaming Mad George and I had been trying for since I met him 
to work on what we call simulacra. Well, we don't call it. It's um, simulacra is kind of like when you see faces in clouds or see clouds and they look like an elephant. Mm -hmm. And so the it's kind of like having images that look like two things at once, depending on the the way you look at it. There's Maude Adams, a Bond girl, and she was the character. She was the actor that um, that the um, that live accepted as the box cover name. Oh, okay. Of course, Clint Howard. I I just love him, <laughs> and and um, and Neith Hunter was somebody that we got um, just through the casting process. Mm -hmm. But George and I really wanted to do these images on film that would get you to that place where things could be two things at once, which in a way, if you take it to an extreme, is really what psychotic people, how they experience reality. You can see things differently, depending, you know, shadows in the dark or the famous um, black and white um, painting of a woman at her vanity mm -hmm. um, putting on lipstick. And if you look at it a certain way, it's a skull. Mm. Um, that's a, you know, that's an example of simulacra. Simulacra works very easily uh, or is able, you can achieve it um, in, in static, um, static images. Mm -hmm. And we have a number of those in here in this movie. But making it move is just almost impossible mm. because things are, you know, the, when, the, when you have motion, it's just impossible to keep the two two worlds going at once. But that was something that George and I were really trying to achieve in this movie and other ones. We started with society trying to do that. Right. And so we, this was where we really went um, whole, you know, threw in totally to try to do it. And it's, um, it works in some places. It, um, it's kind of a rabbit hole you run down. We did it also, I think, in Progeny. Um, it's a way of showing that there's two ways, there's different realities um, going on depending on your point of view. And so this was the, you know, horror movies deal with it, or at least deal with the two different realities a lot. And so this is, um, you know, we really put a lot into that. So you go to live with your completed screenplay, which focuses on the Lilith legend and surrealism and all that. Was there any feedback from them on the fact that you didn't, not only did not have a killer Santa, but Christmas really doesn't figure into this much at all uh, in any way whatsoever. Was there any concern from them that this didn't fit the series very well? Or were they just like, you know, what the hell with it? Just do what you want. Oh, look at, there's the book that I used for the inspiration, the Virgin goddess. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, Yes, I honestly I wasn't interested in doing a Christmas thing, mm -hmm. and um, and now I regret it. And and actually, I tried to atone for it by by um, producing, developing, and producing the the next one, um, the Toy Maker, Silent Night Five, mm -hmm. because I thought, gee, that was so that I don't know why I I I went against that. I. I should have just made a Christmas movie um, and just put more Christmas into into what they, you know, what they had already had in their script. It's a it's an awkward this is an awkward production because the script already existed. And then we were like bending it in different places and went totally against the Christmas idea 
Um, I even made um, Neith Hunter's character be Jewish. <laughs> so, I mean, it was like I was like totally fighting what what this is supposed to be. And I remember when we got the the video box, um, I, I, it was a Christmas tree with a knife in Maude Adams' face. Mm. And I admitted this to, to Richard. I said, you know, I could have made that movie. <laughs> it isn't this one. I think I was a bit out of my mind. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I think Zeph and me getting together, we kind of get pretty out there. And me and George, we get out there. <laughs> and I think I, to a certain degree, I just didn't know how to pull all these elements together. There was a lot of inspiration in this movie. See, there's a simulacra up in the steps. Mm -hmm. It's a stain, a water stain that kind of looks like a scary face. Oh, yeah. So that's a, that's an example of of a of simulacrum. Mm -hmm. But I, they never complained about it not having Christmas. But I I must say I did regret it. Yeah, I have to admit, I remember very distinctly that video cover, the, the VHS cover was that all-white cover with Maude Adams and the knife and, and then the Christmas tree. And, you know, I got at home and started watching it. And about halfway through, I'm just like, I'm not really getting the Christmas feels from this. There's really not much of anything having to do with certainly with Killer Santa or Christmas here and not getting much of a happy holidays feel here. No, the, I, I prefer, I think, <laughs> the, the, the German release of this movie, they ch there's another simulacrum. Mm -hmm. um, the German version of this movie, they, they changed the title and called it Welcome to Hell, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a great name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they got rid of the whole Silent Night thing. They just, you well, know, yeah. it's, I mean, I kind of feel the same way about Return of the Living Dead 3 hmm. that... Um, that that was a um, that didn't have to be Return of the Living Dead. It was a standalone movie. Mm -hmm. So I guess I I fight that a lot. I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, I can understand your position in all of this because I mean, you're, you're at that time you were someone who self-generated their own projects, got them financed, got them going, had to do all that legwork. Then someone offers you something, and it's got to be really hard to just say no to something that has a green light. It's hard for me. Yeah. Well, it certainly was then. And I actually, I can't remember. The only time I've ever turned anything down is when I, um, is when I had a conflict of time. I, I have four kids. I, you know, I had, I had four kids while I was working these movies. And man, you had to make a lot of, um, I had to make movies to make a living. And so I just, and as long as they were genre movies, I was happy. Here's a larva. I forget. This, <laughs> this is um, Screaming Mad George effect. Well, certainly Screaming Mad George is someone I wanted to highlight in particular on this track because your collaborations over the years have uh, been extremely memorable. And he is a singular talent in the makeup effects industry. Uh, his surrealism, you know, the, the body horror aspect of his work, the fusion of different elements into flesh and so forth. He's got a little bit of a Cronenbergian edge to it, but, you know, he brings something that's just so unique and so wonderful and weird and oddly disturbing to not just your films, but to many others as well, although you've highlighted it extremely well, especially with society. I'm just curious as to when did you first hook up with him? Did you hear about him through somebody else or was it a, something of a chance meeting? 
Well, he was um, the society and Bride of Reanimator were financed by Japanese companies. He's Japanese. And um, they recommended to me that I meet him because um, if I used him, if he worked on the movie, it gives him another, you know, another way to, to sell it, um, mm -hmm. you know, f for Japan. Um, now, as you probably know, society was um, was made. Um, it, the original script, which was by Zeph and his partner, um, didn't have any of the any effects really. It was a blood a blood cult. Okay. And I um, wanted to do effects, and I tried to. I I decided I wanted to try this body melding stuff, mm -hmm. and change the the blood sacrifice at the end into a um, into something more fantastical mm. and um, and so when I met George I, I, it was recommended that I, I meet with him this was in the process of rewriting the script and and George um, immediately he was an artist and he was really into surrealism and I was I was always a big you know uh, fan of surrealism and and um, and you know expressionism, and um, and so we looked at all of his artwork, and we started looking at Dolly paintings. We started um, developing the idea of the shunting, mm. and we based a lot of the um, visuals of the shunting on Dolly paintings. Now there's mm. Ben Slack who was in Society. Oh yeah, and the kid is actually my son Conan. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, so the so anyway that was where our um, you know and of course this is all this is real Zeph Daniel kind of um, kind of characters these sort of satirical eighties kind of characters yeah I, you know it's always I always find it amusing or funny the irony that um, Zeph writes with. Now, with this production, you didn't have a lot of sets, really. So there's a lot of practical locations that you're utilizing. And most of the, the main action of the film takes place at the fictional intersection of Jerome and Newitt, which in reality is actually Hawthorne and Vermont, the intersection of Hawthorne and Vermont in Los Angeles. And there's active businesses there. There's residences nearby. How complicated was it to shoot at what was essentially an active location, did the tenants and the, the people living around there have any issues with you? And considering, you know, this is a low-budget production, how difficult was it to achieve everything that you wanted to get out of that location? Yeah, well, I I was looking for a building that was high enough that you could jump off it and die <laughs> and low enough that it was um, not this, you know, tower. Mm. And so three stories seemed about right. And then I needed to have stores at the bottom where you could have the bookstore. I wanted it to be where, you know, I wanted to play the roof and the bookstore and then also the butcher shop. So I wanted everything to be in this one, you know, this one block. Um, shooting there was mostly night, so that wasn't quite so so hard. And also this was shot um, like, um, you know, 30, 40 years, 30 years ago, um, the inner, the, that neighborhood wasn't quite as, as um, hopping as it is now. Yeah, and for you film location buffs out there, if you go by there, it doesn't look really all that different. It's actually uh, just maybe looks a little bit more modernized, a little cleaner, yeah. but it's essentially the same. 
Yeah, this house, this is, there's a really crazy story about this house, um, which I, I think it was in West Covina or something. And we shot these scenes at this house the weekend before Easter. We wrapped on Easter morning. So we shot at that house, I think Thursday, I mean, Friday and Saturday, maybe it was two days. And at the end, at the end of the, of the, and it turned out that there was an error with the camera and the lens was misfitted. Mm. And so we had problems with focus and, and certain scenes um, were unacceptable because of the focus. Oh. Um, so then we had to go back and actually reshoot these scenes mm. um, because we didn't find out about the problem until Monday when we had dailies. Remember, mm. this was shot on 35 millimeter. Oh, right. See, right. Here's, the, here's the example of the boyfriend just, you know, just, you know, kind of mashing her all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, so we had to reshoot. Well, what happened at the end of the, um, at the end, uh, like Easter morning when we wrapped, we left and we left a PA there. Everybody left and a PA stayed there to, to I, I guess wrap up everything. To and the and it turned out that that house was in was in escrow, which is why we could we could use it. Mm -hmm. We had a very low budget, right. and so this was the two two weeks or a month of escrow that the house was in, and we rented it from the real estate or whoever owned it during the escrow time. So. That morning, the people who came to buy, who had bought it came to see the house, and this um, this PA, I think he'd been drinking or something to celebrate <laughs> the, you know, that sort of rap beer type of thing, and this guy was full of himself. And they came in and they said, "Yeah, we've been shooting a movie here," and he said, "We shot scenes of demonic cannibalism." <laughs> Wait, what? And these people were really extreme Christians. Oh no. And so they backed out of the um, out of escrow. <laughs> oh, and so then to save the deal, the um, the company there's Lilith with the fire, mm -hmm. and the company, um, the real estate company then said, "Well, listen, we'll pay for a priest to come and um, <laughs> exercise anything that went on there." So they paid to have it exercised, and the people, you know. Um, um, went ahead and moved in. This, of course, is from Metamorphosis, uh, mm -hmm. this inspiration for the giant cockroach. And um, so then it turned out we needed to reshoot the scenes. Oh, no. <laughs> so we had to go back and ask the family if we could shoot again oh, no. <laughs> these scenes of demonic cannibalism. <laughs> and they were outraged, but eventually they just went ahead and did it for the money and we paid for another exorcism. <laughs> well, there you go, sure. So that's a good location story for independent movies. <laughs> oh my God, that's insane. I guess this is considered an independent, I guess this is considered a um, uh, mini, mini. it's a distributor. Live was a pretty big distributor. No, that's true, but they, they certainly weren't Warner Brothers, you know. No, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a very low budget movie. So considering the low budget, was there an active producer on the set there every day? Was Richard Gladstein in and about, or was he not present as much as he would have normally been? 
No, no, Richard was there always, all the time. Richard just, Richard is great. Richard just, um, no, he was full on. He's in the movie, he's getting extras. He was like totally um, a creative producer, you know. He was in on, he was on everything, very enthusiastic. Great guy to work, work with. And it was not long after this, he hooked up with this uh, filmmaker guy, Quentin Tarantino, to make his first movie, Reservoir Dogs, and he was just sort of off to the races after that. It was a, a really big break for him. Yeah, but believe it or not, I was in my I was in my office. My I had a production office in um, North Hollywood at that time, and we produced this out of my office mm -hmm. and my offices. And Richard actually called me up one morning, and I think this was in post or something, and he said. Um, he said, I think I've got my ticket out of live. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I'm sending over a script. And he sent me, and he messaged me over the script to Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, it's kind of weird, Mr. White, Mr. Red, Mr. <laughs> Pink. And, um, and then throughout the shooting, he used to talk to me about it. Mm. And he was worried about the... Um, about the um, you know, the takes, whether it was being covered, if they had enough mm. shots. And and he had, after five, um, Marty Catroser had been my script supervisor on The Giver when, mm. when Richard came over to our set. And I had known Marty's work as a director before that. And he just, it, he just ended up being the script supervisor. And... Uh, and he was just incredible as a script supervisor, taking, keeping track of, of, um, of both um, Screaming Mad George and Steve Wang, who were each shooting with their own unit mm. simultaneously mm -hmm. on Guyver. It's very complicated. Yeah. And I told uh, Richard, you know, how, how, how impressed I was. And also, Richard, I had a pitch to Richard for the killer toys for the toy maker mm. in, in order to make up for the fact of not having made a Christmas movie. <laughs> and so I pitched that to him, and he says, oh, yeah, let's do it. And I said, yeah, but let's have Marty um, direct it. Mm. And so Marty directed Toymaker, and, um, and then he went with Richard to be the—I think Richard took him to be the script supervisor— of Reservoir Dogs as kind of his his guy on the set to make sure um, it was kind of like a first-time director. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and then um, actually Richard went on to produce quite a few of Tarantino's movies. Right, right. And, um, and Marty Catroser went on to be a script supervisor. Yep, nope. in fact, he's been on every single one of his movies, every, every last one of Quentin's films. Yeah, I mean, Marty, when I was looking for a project to produce, I ha actually had narrowed it down to um, Reanimator, a horror movie, and and Laughing Matters, which was a script that Marty had written based on his short film, Laughing Matters. Mm -hmm. It was about a stand-up comedian cat burglar, hmm. and it was really funny. And ultimately, I I went for the um, for the the um, horror movie because really I, I just was too, too nervous that a comedy wouldn't be funny and I just feel much more comfortable with horror when I'm when I'm doing horror, 
or something weird like that, I feel totally in my element. I completely, mm -hmm. you know, feel good about it. And other genres, I think I would be less secure in. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is the coven, you know. No. So let's take this opportunity to discuss Neith Hunter, your lead actress here, who at that point was uh, coming off of and still engaged in a successful career as a model. But she had done some television and film work uh, prior to this, some small roles in movies like Born in East L.A. and Near Dark and Less Than Zero. Uh, she'd made an appearance on Miami Vice, I think. Uh, but this was clearly a, a big step up for her in terms of uh, the demands of her as an actress. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange role in many ways. It's going to require a lot of her physically. There's the sexuality element of it that's going to be very challenging. What were your experiences like with her on this film, and uh, what did you think that she brought to the part? She was great. Um, I, you know, she was she really a brave actress, really just ready to to kind of try it, go for it. Mm -hmm. And she, it was hard for her to do the nudity. I think for most actresses, mm -hmm. it is. And I just, I don't know. I felt like this role was really about sex and and feminism and you know, kind of being, you know, in a cult and mm. trying to get out of it. And, of course, I will do any story. It's going to have a lot of effects. And I don't know. I got along with Neith really great. I think she really was an independent person. So, in a way, I feel like she she really um, was appropriate for the role because she she was so independent mm. as a as a person, as a woman. And um, she, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed working with her. And she's really, so, you know, she's so attractive and so natural. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, she really does have a, I mean, obviously there's the natural beauty aspect of her. I mean, she's a very attractive woman. But at the end of the day, she's got sort of an, uh, an empathetic sense to her. And that she, you really, she draws you in and you want to, you feel very protective of her at times. Because she seems on the surface to be almost very delicate and unprepared for what's about to happen to her, and yet she does, you know, shows an incredible amount of strength and resilience at times. So, she was a terrific choice for the role in many ways. I, I really think it was a great choice. So here's another simulacra where she's starting to come under the, you know, the the sim, you know, the cult is starting to, you know, invade her. So she'll see a face in the twigs. See the to see the face there. It's like now her world is starting to to shift. It's it's um, you know, things aren't looking exactly the way they had been. Yes, things are about to get very very weird for her. But we put her in, gave her I gave her a role in Toymaker. Right, right. A, a, you know, a, a support you know like a supporting role, mm -hmm. and she and it was totally not weird. <laughs> and that was kind of, in a way, my showing her, you know, trying to give her a, you know, give her, you know, make up for putting her through all that crap. Right, giving her know? a break. Um, I realize that I make people do such terrible things, but <laughs> for some reason I just love going there. A lot of actors don't want to do it, mm -hmm. you know. I remember when I was trying to get Mindy Clark to do um, – 
Necronomicon, oh. the third episode that I did, which is a little bit like this movie, actually. Mm-hmm. Kind of has that kind of a gritty, not very attractive kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a hellish movie in which a woman undergoes a real, um, real kind of hell. Mm-hmm. And um, Mindy turned it down. She passed on the role mm. that's... Um, and she and she told she said, you know, I just don't want to go there. I just don't want to live in that character. Mm. And I I get it. I mean, she did such a terrific job with Return of Living Dead Three. Oh and, yeah, my God. But um, I I understand. You know, actors have to actually um, they've got to live the part. Yep. yep. So so in that case, Neith got to have a part that was just ordinary. And I had a question about that, actually, because in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, the character she plays has the same name as the character in this movie. In fact, your son Conan reprises, quote-unquote, reprises his role, same role, you know, character name in that one, too, and Clint Howard even is credited as having the same name as he did in here. But none of them seem to be playing the same characters that are featured in this movie. Was Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I think we were just fool- playing around with that stuff. We, um, I'm not sure that there was much at all to it. Because mm. she sure, in part five, she sure doesn't seem like somebody who's been through hell. No. <laughs> no, there's no mention whatsoever of any of the crap that happens to her in this movie. Yeah. No, nothing like that at all. She uh, has a normal life in that picture. When we shot the ending on this, we couldn't shoot up here again. This was all part of the time that our camera, the lens was missed, didn't seat properly. And we had to reshoot the ending, the nighttime ending that we did here. And we had to like build this, you know, fake a roof on stage. Hmm. And I mean, we had very little, little money for that. Um, The production designer really did a terrific job of doing something with nothing. I think his name was Gilbert Mercier. He was a French mm-hmm. French guy. Right. And um, he really just, God, he, there was no money, you know. We had nothing, you know. <laughs> and there was another member of your crew I wanted to discuss. That was your DP, Philip Holohan. You two hadn't worked together before at this point. And he had a little bit of horror cred. He had uh, been the first assistant cameraman on Friday the 13th Part 2. So how did you two work together on, uh, as you admitted, this very low-budget project? He was good. He was very enthusiastic. And, you know, once again, he had very few resources. You know, we were always having to come up with ways to shoot stuff for nothing. I know at that location before Easter, the morning, I think our last shot on that location was... um, a shower scene where Neith is taking a shower mm-hmm. and we had nowhere or how to shoot it. We just set up a, a hose on the street, on the sidewalk <laughs> and, um, and put a shower, you know, a shower frame around it wow. and, and shot the scene out on the street <laughs> because we had no, no place else to put it in the schedule. And mm. so as the sun came up on Easter morning, Phillips' crew was out there, like, blacking it and keeping the light <laughs> off. I mean, a lot of DPs would just throw up their hands at that stuff. But but he just hung in there, you know. Wow, that's awesome. 
this this hallway is also shot in that same building. So did you even have a, a traditional studio per se? I'm trying to rem. Yeah, we did. We had not really a studio, but there was a warehouse that wasn't even really. I mean, it was. It was like just. It wasn't a warehouse for shooting film, mm. but there was a warehouse at um, at um, at the train yards downtown. Oh, and um, we shot. We kind of made that a studio. It was pretty pretty ramshackle. <laughs> now you mentioned that Maude Adams was sort of the name get that live entertainment needed to you know get this project going. Uh, who suggested her? Was that you or Richard or someone else? Well, that was that was Richard Gladstein. Hmm. I mean, they they had they had a, back then in the video era, they were certain A B C names for mm-hmm. video, and um, in the same way as a you know a studio picture needs Tom Cruise or somebody, you know, they have to have a cast that's going to sell the movie. Hmm. Um, on video back then, when this was direct-to-video, of course, um, unlike Society and Bride of Reanimator, we aspired for it to be theatrical, and they both were to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and and overseas. Um, but this, these live productions, the, the Silent Night ones that um, Richard was doing, they were all the economics of it was based on going to um, to video, right. And um, and so there were certain names that um, would be acceptable, and the the video uh, marketers, as you said, they made a box with the with you know, <laughs> Maude Adams and the knife. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't care what the movie was. <laughs> and I think you'll notice everywhere in the set decoration and. Everything's got spirals. Everything's oh, yeah. got, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's sort of like a descent into madness. Mm-hmm. More and more, I feel like, <laughs> you know, the Germans had it right. <laughs> Welcome to hell is probably, <laughs> it's probably the the name this movie should have. <laughs> no, it's certainly an accurate one for sure, yeah. Now, in terms of the, the, the film's sort of, you know, bending of reality and the, the various kind of weird surrealistic changes that happened not only to her character but her emotional state as well. Was it hard to track that during production considering you were probably shooting at a sequence and making sure that the film had a, a consistent through line with her emotional state and the sort of weird reality bending that was going on? Um, I, didn't, I don't remember that being an issue. I mean, mm-hmm. movies are always shot out of order. Right. You know, right. I don't, I've never shot anything that was mostly in order. You're shooting, you know, and usually I try not to shoot the ending first. Right. But sure. basically you shoot out a location. So yeah. you, you know, like when we're shooting the building, we, you know, we shot the roof, we shot the sidewalk, we shot the hallways, we shot the exterior of the library, of the bookstore shot the exterior of the butcher shop so we just shot all of that stuff you know within uh, you know together mm-hmm. now um the um that was the first that was our first location as i recall hmm. so everything that was shot at that location was shot there 
including the ending um, on the roof, because we had to shoot it while we had rented the location, while we had the the um, the um, trucks with 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 electrical and grip mm -hmm. equipment there, and our you know we just had to do you know we ha you have to shoot it out of order. We shot, of course, the opening with the the stunt of you know jumping from the roof burning mm -hmm. is um was shot there too and that was the the prologue hmm. but then we also shot the ending there mm -hmm. i prefer not to sell shoot an ending first yeah. right or shoot that you know because i feel like you got to get you know you got to work up you got to get the crew working right mm -hmm. but i also don't like to shoot the ending the, at the end of the production hmm. because you always run out of you always start having problems and run out of time and towards the end of a production you have to start cutting stuff right and right. you've got to start abbreviating how you cover stuff and this is a um, and so you don't want to be cutting you don't want to shoot the beginning or the end for me I never want to shoot the beginning or the end of the movie at the end of the production schedule mm -hmm. because I know that I'm going to end up having to um, to abbreviate it somehow and I want it to be I want to shoot more in the middle of production the the you know kind of you know more challenging or more important stuff right right now this was crazy those cockroaches believe it or not we had to get a cockroach wrangler oh sure I bet yeah. and um, there was this roach guy um, I think he did a lot of insects mm -hmm. but I I wanted a lot of roaches you know <laughs> and um, and so he brought big jars big gallon jars full of roaches thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of cockroaches and we were on stage in her kitchen and he would you know, like like um, use dry ice to kind of freeze the roaches and and um, and then they would be under the the tube would come up to the sink mm -hmm. and then the lights would thaw them out <laughs> and they would just come running all over and they would run all over the set yeah. you can imagine thousands and thousands of roaches running around everybody yeah. on the set mm -hmm. and his kids he and his two kids ran around and picked up all those roaches and put them back in the jars. <laughs> Two, I mean, I forget how old those kids were, 10, 12 years old, a, a boy and a girl, I think it was. My God, it was incredible to see them do that, and then we'd do another take. Wow. So this is her initiation here. Right. Welcome to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I don't care, 10, 13 years old, if it were me, you wouldn't get me anywhere near those roaches. Man, I was just amazed by it. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, I'm used to, you know, animal wranglers on a set, you know, but I'd never heard. And and insects, you have people that handle insects, you know, but not like thousands of roaches, you know, just they they would scoop them up in handfuls. Ugh. No, thank you. That is one occupation I could do without. Actually, as we watch the uh, initiation proceedings here, we should probably uh, give a shout out and talk about Clint Howard, who you had not worked with before at this point. And I uh, was wondering how you two came into contact with each other. 
gosh, I'm trying to think. I certainly didn't meet him. This he must have been a um, a Richard Ra uh, Richard Gladstein's idea, or I mean, I knew of I knew his stuff. I knew like rock and roll high school, and you know. Um, I knew, and I, I even remember when he was in that Bear TV show. This is this is vintage Screaming Mad George effects here. You know, George is the best at the weird stuff. I, I really, um, I really like you know his style. I just think he's just an artist, and Neith does a great job here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's a fake head, of course, you know. And this was shot on stage, but but what a thing to for her to have to go through. I can't believe I'm such a I, I would do such a thing. <laughs> Sometimes I look at the movies I've made, and I'm just sort of shocked. And I think, what uh, what the heck were you doing, you know? <laughs> well, I have to give you a lot of credit because, I mean, this movie perplexed me when I first watched it. But after going back a few times, I started kind of getting into the rhythms you were throwing down. I can't, be I can't believe you watched it a few times. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. I did. There's another simulacra. It's the light oh, yeah. changes, you know. Oh, yeah. But no, seriously, uh, the the movie it's definitely one that after you're done watching it the first time, you you kind of sit back and go, okay, I'm not sure what I just watched, and uh, but I know that I've not seen this movie before, and this also applies to Silent Night, Deadly Night Five, and uh, if you're listening to the commentary track on that, I'm sure you'll be hearing me and the director Martin Kotroser. I'll be saying many of the same things to him, and I, you know, you produced that movie and a lot of the other movies you produced and directed. Just you tackle things in such a unique way, and you were doing things back in the late '80s and into the '90s and into now that other filmmakers weren't doing and giving us visuals that I wasn't seeing anywhere else. And I really admire that. To a certain degree, I think I just didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I think I, as someone, I, I think most people that are sort of independent filmmakers or. Um, they, I, you know, they start early. They have dreams of making movies, you know, when they're teenagers, mm -hmm. you know. And I loved movies, but I grew up outside the country. I never was anywhere where I knew anybody that worked in the industry, in any entertainment industry. I had no clue. I, I, it never occurred to me that you could actually, you know, make a living in in entertainment in mm. movies and when i inadvertently ended up with a um a bolex 16 millimeter camera um and made a kind of a amateur film i just got swept away by the by the um process but i had never taken and i was already in my 30s i'd done many other businesses mm -hmm. and so i went into it i wanted to make my I just thought it would be great if I could make a living making movies I just mm. thought wow that that'd be better than all the other stuff I've done mm. and um, but I never took a class in it I never you know I've I got books about movie production I had no idea even what a producer was <laughs> I asked the guy who had gone to film school and and 
helped me make the, my um, amateur short. And he sa- I said, what does a producer do? And he said, well, the producer's the boss and he makes the most money. And so I thought, well, that's what I want, <laughs> you know, because I always like being the boss. Hmm. And I think we all do. And I always like to make the most money. Well, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, but I didn't realize that the director kind of gets to make all these decisions, all hmm. these just all these little decisions, what color the wall is, where to put the, you know. And so after I had watched Stuart Gordon direct three movies that I produced, and I worked real closely with Stuart, mm-hmm. um, then I think it's natural that you kind of go, I'd like to try that. Right. And basically, I think what I did as I started producing, I was clueless, but I had been on, I made movies. And I'd been on the sets, and I basically sort of learned from Stuart how to direct, I guess. I mean, I certainly had a different—I wasn't—he's a theater kind of director. But—and um, and he has a—of course, he's—I mean, when he made Reanimator, he had already been a, a full-time director of theater for 10 years. He was a professional. Right. Um, he was, you know, I think that's one reason why we're all so impressed by Reanimator is that it was a first time director directing a cheap exploitative horror movie. But we've never seen such a such a accomplished director do it. Mm-hmm. And with and with full commitment, because Stuart loves to shock. Mm. So I but of course, I had a different point of view and I don't know how to direct. I didn't know how to deal with actors. I just stumbled my way forward, and on society, Zeph and his partner, they'd never made a movie, mm-hmm. you know? So it, so we were, um, you know, we didn't really, you know, we were just kind of going a bit crazy, you know? And I think that um, this movie especially shows that. I think there's more ideas in it than than anything, but it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite, um, it doesn't have a clear narrative <laughs> of what's what's kind of at stake, but it is a lot of weird scenes put together. Well, I just appreciated the fact that it was a movie that I had not, like I said, I had not seen before, that this surprised me and that I didn't know where it was going and that it had imagery in it that shocked me and surprised me and you know, maybe confused me a little bit, but I, I had faith in what you were trying to tell me as a storyteller. Yeah, I think where it gets the worst, I think where the, this movie's the best and maybe most of my movies are the best is uh, the ones I direct especially are where the is where is the weird scenes. Oh, yeah. It's the weird scenes, the horror scene, that stuff I'm I just feel very comfortable with. And where I tend to get very where I where I'm weakest is when I'm trying to pull it together and kind of use narrative tropes, Mm -hmm. narrative structures to kind of give it a context. Mm. And I'm just not you know, I don't think I ever figured that out because I was I'm generally chasing a rabbit, you know, down a hole, you right. know, I, you know, George and I would just go crazier and crazier. Same goes for Zeph. And of course, Richard was just, um, he was all for it. Hmm. You know, he just was having a great, we all had a great time, you know, <laughs> now she's, now she's changed. She's starting to be the more dominant one. 
so another crew member of yours that I really wanted to talk about, I should really say more of a collaborator, uh, is someone that you worked with several times and also is someone who would really help shape the form of your films as a director. And that, of course, is editor Peter Teschner, who was also an associate producer on this particular film. I'm curious about how you two work together, not just on this film, but on, on your films in general, especially something like Society, where you have this rubber reality, this sort of dream state that kind of goes in and out and you're not sure what's real and what isn't real and how you find a way to balance the more normal scenes along with what Screaming Mad George is throwing down. I mean, there has to be a very complicated mix when you're in the editing room trying to find out the feel for something like that. How did you and Peter work together to kind of find your way through a project like this? Well, Peter taught me a lot. I really, um, I really had a lot of, um, I mean, editors can, well, there's, there's Santa. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. He is in there. Absolutely. Yeah, in the form of uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night yeah. 3. So I'm sure it wasn't hard to get the rise to that. The uh, Anyway, the Peter was my editor on Society, and he really helped me shoot the movie. Um, an editor, I, I've given, I actually, I, I, um, I gave an editor a job directing um, a movie. My editor in Spain... I gave the I had him direct um, the 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 um, the Nun, which mm. is a movie I produced there, um, because editors they really know how a movie is put together and how stories are put together. Mm -hmm. An editor is really the the final kind of kind of the final storyteller on the movie. I, music, of course, but but the, he really takes he really knows what you need to tell a story visually, and Peter was. I was, you know, I didn't know what I was doing on, on society. I was just, you know, kind of chasing the rabbit. But I would go into the, you know, I'd go look at dailies with Peter and, and he would tell me stuff. And, and he really made that movie, you know, put it, you know, made sure there was a narrative there. And it, it taught me a ton. And then on Bride of Reanimator, he also was the editor. Um, so I loved, I just loved working with them. You know, you got to really, you got to really feel some simpatico with an editor when mm -hmm. you're a director because you're spending a ton of time with them, right. a whole lot of time, and um, and so it's got to be somebody that you're you're good with, you know. Mm -hmm. And Peter was certainly that. I just learned a ton from him. He did this one and. Um, you know, sometimes editors are a little bit, um, they're, you know, they, they can only work with the material they have. Mm -hmm. So if a movie's not good, if the movie's weak in ways, it's generally not because of the editor. Sometimes editing can be bad in a movie, but generally the editor has, you know, he can only work with the material he's got. Mm -hmm. And I think that any, the weaknesses of this movie... The, the parts that don't work about this movie, boy, absolutely doesn't have to do with the editing. Hmm. I mean, Peter makes it all flow together. I mean, it it totally, um, you know, from shot to shot, scene to scene, this movie is really well cut. Mm -hmm. So the weakness of it is not the editing. 
No, in fact, speaking of the editing, this sequence in particular is one of the most effective in the movie, I think. And I'm glad that we had this opportunity to talk about this movie because this scene really stands out for me because unlike some of the more outrageous visuals you see in this picture, which are disturbing in their own way, this has much more of a gut-level effectiveness to it because, you know, someone could break into your house and do this to you and stab your boyfriend right in front of you. And from her perspective, we're seeing this whole thing take place. It's, it's, it's the most violent scene and the most disturbing scene, I think, really in the entire movie. Yeah, oh, it definitely is. Actually, one of the most violent, I, I, I mean, I forgot, I haven't seen this. You've got to remember for 30 years, mm-hmm. but I think it's probably one of the most violent things I've ever directed. I would agree. I mean, this is like a typical psycho killer kind of movie. Right. You know, this is like a, um, you know, just a, just violence. Yeah. Not, it's really not my style, really. And again, we're, we're with, from her perspective, we're just seeing in this and hearing it. The sound effects are just so grotesque. But then, you know, not to get too serious, we have, uh, come on out now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you really just got to hand it to Clint Howard. He's just one of those guys that whenever you see his name in the credits, you're just like, well, thank God he's in here. So at least there'll be something entertaining to watch. And uh, and he can do a part like this or Ice Cream Man or something like that and then turn around and be, you know, a NASA technician in Apollo 13. He's just incredible. Well, I really liked, I, I think the only other time I worked with him maybe was in The Dentist Part 2. Right. And man, it was so much fun. I did. Uh, I had a scene with just him and Corbin, mm-hmm. and it was another one of those things where it was a one-day shoot, and we shot the entire scene in one day. And it was just that scene. It was just Clint and Corbin. Mm-hmm. And after we shot it, and they were so great together. Mm-hmm. And after we shot it, it turns out there was a problem with the film because oh, no. we were shooting on short ends, oh. which means we never bought a whole reel of film. Mm-hmm. We bought the film that other people turned in when they when they needed to start a new reel. Mm-hmm. That's how cheap we were. <laughs> and um, and something was wrong with it. Oh, and we had to actually reshoot the entire scene. <laughs> so I got to do two days to do the same scene oh, twice. Well. But Clint is great, and he was became a friend of mine. I really like Clint. There's actually another casting choice I'd like to talk about a little bit here. That's Elise Beasley as yeah. uh, one of the Coven members. And, of course, uh, that comes as a surprise later on. But, you know, she's such an appealing kind of earthy presence. And she was having a lot of success at the time that you uh, did this movie on a little show called Mood Lighting with uh, yeah. Bruce Willis and uh, Sybil Shepard. So there was that. Well, she was, I mean, she was great. And she, hey, anybody that did this movie had to be a trooper. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody had to be a trooper. And she brings a kind of a realism to it, you know, kind of. I think she's very, um, she's really um, kind of believable, Mm -hmm. you know. She's, actually all the actors are good Mm -hmm. now that I watch this again. Oh, no, everyone is great. They, I don't think, and and Neith really, really um, Mm. holds, holds her end up, you know. What a what a nightmare for her to have to act. Well, you know, it's interesting because I mean she her role in this, I mean it's a lead role, but she it's a largely reactive role. She's constantly in an, an emotional flux because of things that are being thrust upon her and revelations and all this shocking stuff. 
And it, it that's difficult for any actor to do. I don't care who it is. Yeah. I, yeah, she really doesn't get a break. At the beginning, I think the only time she gets to be normal is when she's sort of a few scenes where she's investigating. Right. And um, other than that, her, her damn boyfriend is just terrible, mm. you know, just a terrible kind of dominant character. And then she thinks she's getting, getting, um, you know, she see there's a way out of that with the women. And boy, it turns out they're just even worse. Well, they certainly have a different approach to things. And uh, wanted to talk a little bit here about the uh, this initiation scene, which is about to get very, very interesting. And um, I did want to ask if you could tell me, was there any meaning behind Clint Howard's uh, mask here? Anything you can tell me about that? <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I mean, it was inspired by Clockwork Orange. Oh, right. Yeah. And... Um, and I don't know, I had this image of the clockwork orange mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> it, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but there is, you know, it's tricky to do a, a witch's thing or a black mass or, mm. you know, these kind of supernatural um, rituals. I find, I feel like, you, you know, sometimes, generally, I think they're done too formalistically or too too ritualistically mm. and i i think i think by putting it in the meat locker and and i i mean to me it's like god just a terrible ritual yeah no there's nothing very fun about this at all now considering the, the ambitions of this project and all the exterior locations i wanted to ask about your shooting schedule again was it really just three weeks or somewhere along the lines of 18 days or something like that? I don't know if it was a full 18 days. Might have been. Might have been 17, 18 days. Back then, um, a cheap independent movie would be about, um, I don't know, um, it would be like four weeks, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we would try to do is do six-day weeks. Right which is really tricky because you have to have turnaround for the actors and the crew. Mm. So you got to schedule it, you know, specially. And, um, but these silent nights and later the dentist, they, I love this George. No. Oh, yeah. We did a, we did a similar thing to that in, in, in beyond reanimator, mm-hmm. except they were moving, but I love, I love George's stuff. Um, but we, um, you know, (laughs) I I can't keep my mind on what I'm saying. (laughs) My God, who made this movie? Jesus Christ. I mean, like I said, I've never seen anything like this before, so (laughs) it's wacky. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. I'm going to have to go take a bath after this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Neath! Neath, oh, I know. Neath deserves, Neath deserves a, a medal I, for no this. No kidding. My God, she's giving it her all, man. This is again, you know, I, I'm watching this for the first time, going, not seen this before. No, this is real. I mean, this is real supernatural <laughs> <laughs> ritual, God. 
Uh, yeah, no, this is definitely a ritual I would not want to participate in to any degree ever. And as we transition out of this exhaust pipe on the roof, I'm going to transition into my next subject, albeit a little awkwardly. Uh, as far as Silent Nights 4 and 5 are concerned, did you have the same shooting schedule and budget to make each of those movies? Was that pretty much what you were given? I think so. I think so. I, I don't think I ever saw a budget for this. Richard Gladstein produced it. And um, part five, I, I was a producer on that. I mean, I, I co-produced it with Richard, really, mm-hmm. and because I wasn't directing. And I, and I, and I co-wrote the script with Marty. I think, um, you know, I, I think Marty kind of made it all be a movie mm-hmm. <laughs> and created the characters, and I kind of came in with the, with the weird concepts and the ending <laughs> type stuff. So she's now shed her skin, and now she's a new person. She's an all-new woman, yep. At this point, I had planned to flip the film and make what was on the left on the right from here on out in the movie once she's undergone her initiation. And so I shot it that way, and even in the newspaper offices, I made the signs backwards and stuff. But somehow, you know, back then you had to like reprint the film backwards. Mm -hmm. You couldn't like today. Like, actually, we could have done it on this Blu-ray. We could have just flipped it because you just push a button Mm. and it would be flipped. And the idea was going to be the world had changed. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think it's that point. I think that's when her initiation is complete. Now she's one of them. Right, right. And I think where you here you wouldn't notice anything except an audience. My theory was that this just goes to show we had more ideas than we had sense. <laughs> so my, my idea was that the audience would just all of a sudden feel unbalanced because on a certain level you would know that this is backwards. Right. This scene would be hard to, um, but... Um, when you go into the newspaper office and stuff, I think there would be there'd probably be a subtle difference in seeing the actors with their in their mirror image. Right. No, that's true. Yeah. Very, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that on film. You on video, Blu-ray, you could actually do it with, for no without any, you know, no problem. Well, we can do a director's cut down the line, a reversible director's cut. <laughs> you know, why not? Do the reversal. Right. <laughs> okay, this is a question I ask pretty much every filmmaker that I do a commentary with, and I never seem to phrase it the right way, so this will just be another in a long series of uh, badly uh, organized thoughts, but... In terms of filming a low-budget production like this, now you've done some higher-budgeted productions in your time, and then you've done ones like this where you have, you know, a few weeks and, you know, a couple of pennies together to uh, to get it all done. Do you think having limitations actually makes you more creative, and is that something you would actually prefer, or do you prefer sometimes having a big bag of money that you can throw at the problem and make it go away? I mean, what's your thought on that? Well, I would rather have a lot of money and then I'll just make bigger problems. You never, <laughs> you know, it's like it's like the the electricians or the crew always would say. They say the or the or ads. They say 
work will expand to fit the time. Mm. And I think that if you're not, I always just feel like if you're not stretching the budget, if you're not pushing further than what you've got, you're probably not um, doing your job, <laughs> you know. And now this guy, he was a cop also in society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think he's got the same name from society. Well, I mean, there you go again. Like I mentioned in uh, with the other characters, the, the same name, but not exactly the same character. And then now this guy as well. Yeah, I think that was, I think that might be a, f well, yeah, I think so. I, and I think on five, um, Zeph didn't work on that one. So I guess it was just a quirk of mine or, mm. you know, these were like, there was nobody looking at what we did on these movies. <laughs> no. It's not like we ever, see here, this would have been flipped backwards. And mm. maybe if you see a sign, you'll see it's backwards because we, we made the signs backwards for that. Okay. She's badass now. <laughs> but anyway, David Wells was the was the cop, mm. and he was the cop with the toupee and in society, and I think his name was Sergeant Burke in society as well. I'm not sure. So you've got your own little Brian Usna cinematic universe going on here, which uh, I fully support, by the way. It's funny because we got this motel. And the reason I got it was because it was tawdry. Mm -hmm. And now, and then I was thinking later, I said, why did you do that? You know, why <laughs> shoot in a, in a kind of an unattractive place? And, mm. um, and then I, you know, but I think when I was doing it at the beginning, that we start here when she's having sex with sort of like a noontime, you know, lunch sex with her boyfriend, I, um, I felt like all the sex, everything with him and her kind of relationship with him should be kind of tawdry and kind of a little bit dirty, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And this was like a, a motel, like a motel that has porno on it, right? <laughs> just a, just like a, the idea was that, you know, that her, her sex and her you know, with the with her boyfriend and everything, is just, she's just a victim of you know patriarchy or something, and 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 the sex isn't really you know it's just for his you know his purposes. And now she's literally beginning to overheat. <laughs> Here comes Clint. Yeah, this was shot. This shower. I believe this part of it was shot out on the street right. at that house, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah. Or at least some some scenes of it must have been. Hmm. Some scenes, because this looks like it's in a bathroom, but I don't see a... must have been at that motel, but I think we needed something at the um, out there, because I remember putting up the shower outside that house, and this looks... It looks like a hose, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, this very well could be that. I'm, yeah, maybe. I'd have to, you know, I, I keep all the production reports and everything, and I could probably, I need, I should look it up, and see what our what we shot, where. Now there is a Christmas scene here, so I guess There's you know I was scene. wrong. You know, there, there, you did you did bring it in here. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think part five is much more honest. As far as Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, oh yeah. Because we yeah. got to have an actual Santa Claus killer. 
And we got to have Mickey Rooney do it for heaven's sake. Well, sense, yeah, there you, you go. Know. Of course. I mean, that was that was great. He was great. And and that one was a real Santa Claus killer. Mm-hmm. And a decidedly unique Pinocchio retelling as well. So there you had that going for you. Yeah, well, that was the concept. When I when I saw Richard when he visited me out at the at the at the stage of the Giver in Simi Valley, I said he because he, he said, "Hey, the initiation made its money back. You hmm. know, it did it did what the marketing wanted it to do. <laughs> so um, you want to do another one? There you go." And I said, "Okay." I said, "Yeah," and I wanted. I think we should do killer toys, hmm. and with a, with a toy maker who makes a. Uh, doll. So we. So the, his name was Joe Petto, <laughs> and then his his son is Pino. Right. And so I said, let's do Killer Toys, Santa Claus, and um, but let's have Marty direct it. I don't know why I didn't want to direct it. I might. Have, I, I have no idea. Um, I have to say, since you mentioned it, I've been kind of on the lookout for it, and I noticed a license plate earlier and then there was now just in this particular scene uh, as they were entering into the house and I, I don't know why I never noticed this before but the uh, the house numbers they were in fact reversed same as the license plate oh yeah did you see it yeah yeah so it's meant to be flipped hmm. it's a it was a subtle I mean it's just a conceptual thing in a way now was it just certain shots you needed to be flipped or was it everything that's in after that point in the picture no, the whole thing straight through. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, well, like, yeah, I think the world changes. I'd never thought about every of, of different shots because you're dealing with uh, cost when it was filmed. Right. And the cost is that um, is that you um, if you take you know ten minutes of film or 20, fifteen minutes of film and flip it and do it, that's much less work than if you select shots and hmm. and you have to edit them back into the negative right and, you know but i think it works as just the idea that the, that the world changes i think that i think this movie is is the world of neath's character i think hmm. it's not um i don't think it's um i think the whole the whole thing is um is her world and whether you're literally seeing it from her POV or not, hmm. I think this whole this whole story is her world. Right. Now, in terms of the release for the film, since you obviously didn't have to wait for theatrical returns and so forth, because this was, you know, direct-to-video, and you would know from the street date whether or not you were successful or not based on the amount of VHS tapes you sold into the stores... How long did it take for them to come to you for part five, you know, to get that going? Was it a matter of weeks? Was it a matter of months? Do you have any idea how long a gap there was? Um, I had not much. Oh, I don't. Let me think. It was, it would have had to, I would have had to have been all the way through Guyver. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. It would have been a month or two, hmm. um, I think. Um, I could I could probably figure it out, um, but maybe the reason I didn't want to direct it is because I was busy producing Guyver and Guyver was quite a quite a complicated shoot. Right. So, yeah. and I, we were in the middle of shooting Guyver when mm. 
he visited me and we started this. But I'm not sure. I, I, it's, it's a mystery to me. Now, this scene here, you mentioned before that you, you had to shoot some of it on a stage and that some of it was, you know, lost because uh, of a film problem. Was that what the what was going on here with some of this? Yeah, well, this scene here, this is all shot on stage. Okay. Because this was, this scene, this whole scene was the scene that we, that we, that was ruined by the, by the bad lens. Oh, okay, right, right, right. And so we had to, you know, um, um, Gilbert had to, like, really make a roof from nothing. And you see there's no background. It's just black, mm -hmm. right? So they're shooting against a black um, curtain. Right, right. Now, in a situation like this where you're making a low-budget film and you need to get people in it, uh, you grab, obviously, would go to family, so you got your son Conan here playing would-be victim Lonnie. And uh, was this the first time that he was in one of your movies? I can't recall. Well, he was in, he had a little bit, bit scene in Society. Hmm. And then with Richard, it was fun working, well, even in Society, in the big shunting and everything, any crew that wasn't working, friends, family, neighbors, that all came to be in the scene. We used to do that because we didn't have much money for extras. Right. And um, and and working with Richard. Richard's really, he likes getting everybody involved, and he he's really um, easy going with it. And I think we um, there was I think no my son Conan. And my daughter, um, I put I I had my kids go to um, acting classes and theater and musical theater and I think it's really good for kids to to do acting because it teaches them to separate themselves from their emotions a little bit. But also, um, we used to get them jobs. So uh, my son he did um, we you know by the time he went to college he had some money from. Doing acting and from, and from doing um, ads, you know, print work and stuff. So, but he, he now is kind of, is like totally doesn't want anybody to mention it. <laughs> really, I think he's really embarrassed by it. Oh, and yet he actually, in hey, in the in part five he gets hit by a car. Yes, he does, know? doesn't he? I mean, you know, he would. I did a. I did a. Um, I did a Q&A for part five at the Egyptian theater. It was like an 11 o'clock show. Mm. And they wanted him to do it, too, and he just wouldn't do it, you oh, know? Oh. Now, this got cut. Um, this, the fire melting scene, the MPAA cut it. We had this oh. really cool, very involved, you know, wax melting face that George did. Mm. It looked really great, and you know, Back then, if you were a small movie, the MPA just used to kind of take out the best stuff, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, what's so? What's the big deal about a melting face, you know? And uh, and you were the reanimator guy, so they were lying in wait for you. I, well, with reanimator, I never gave it to them. That's right. Yeah. I just let it be X. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we couldn't do this with these things because these were all made for distributors. Mm -hmm. You know, they had all these movies, they had a, they, you know, they, there was, they needed a movie, maybe they had the title, and then we made the movie based on the money that they had. Right, right. 
Well, as the end credits begin to roll here, I guess, Brian, I need to ask you, how do you feel about this movie now? You, you haven't watched it, you said, in a long time, and uh, I'm curious as how it plays to you now as uh, looking back on your own directorial effort all these years later. What do you feel about it? Well, I see it kind of from a much more distance. I find it to be kind of revolting in some, some ways. And, and I've kind of forgotten a lot of the, the, I guess you'd call it poetic or mythic logic that I had going in. I had all kinds of schemes about the, you know, the insects and the larvae and all this stuff. There was a logic to it that I, I, I thought maybe I would remember when I watched it. But um, I'm, I think watching this, I kind of lose, I think it's, the ending for me doesn't quite wrap up. It seems like there's some shots missing for the end to really take Neith, really let us know how she feels about it at the end. So that's a little unsettling. It doesn't work quite so much. I'm not real happy with the, the, the dummy that's burning at the end. It just looks too much like a dummy. Um, uh, the, but I'm really impressed by, by Neith's... Um, by Neith, what she goes through in the movie, I, I just really feel like, wow, she really um, did a great job. You know, really, really held her end of the bargain. I think it's a kind of a little tour de force for her. I really appreciate it now, probably more than I ever did. And the acting was across the board, I think, incredible, you know. And the, the the humor, the ironic humor, satire that that Zeph brought to the characters in certain sequences worked really nice. And um, the effects are great. The, the larvas are a bit clunky in places. I don't like that. Um, but you know, the finger de deformations are fantastic. Um, and um, I don't know. It in a way, I kind of liked it more than I thought I would. Well, Brian, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to share your memories of Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 with me and everyone listening. Uh, it was a real treat, and I think fans are really going to love the fact that uh, you chose to go down memory lane on this particular production. It was uh, certainly a very memorable one for us viewers, and it sounds like it was certainly one for you uh, as the director. Well, thanks for welcoming me to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be of service, sir. Thank you.